Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. And this evening we're going to look at the final section of Ecclesiastes 3. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 22. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beasts goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us and teach us from it tonight. Father in heaven, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray you'd wield it among us to our spiritual good and to your own glory. Teach us from your word and may your Holy Spirit be our teacher tonight. We pray in Christ's name, amen. This text speaks of something that's very familiar to us. It speaks of corruption in high places. It speaks of abuses of power. Because what happens invariably, time and time again, throughout the ages, is men, be, men acquire power and then they begin to abuse that power that they've acquired. And why does that happen? So frequently, so regularly, people feel empowered. And as they feel empowered, they feel entitled. Power is very addictive, very enticing, very alluring. And what people forget is that they're dust. They think they're powerful, but all they are is dust, dust and ashes. But they came from the dust, and they'll return to the dust. I think of Psalm 103. Why don't you turn there with me? Psalm 103. We're in Ecclesiastes. We're very close to it anyway. Psalm 103. And verse 14, it speaks of the compassion of God towards his children, the compassion of God towards those who fear him. And it says in verse 14, he, God, knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And those are beautiful words. Those are very consoling words for a person whose spirit is, is uh, 
penitent over sin. Those are words of encouragement. When a person is grieving and mourning over their sin and, and is repenting and confessing their sin, it's good for us to hear that God has compassion on you and he remembers that you're dust. The, the fact that God knows that we're dust or even the simple fact that we are dust uh, has, a different, um, has a different ring for someone uh, who's uh, proud. To the proud, the fact that one is dust is a word of rebuke. It's a word that puts us in our place. It's a word that reminds proud man, man who feels powerful, that he's like the grass of the field, he's like the flower of the field. He withers and he's gone. He's weak, temporary, he's fading, he's vanity, to use the language of Ecclesiastes. And think about the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon himself. Solomon, in all his glory, was mere dust. So how was it that this man of dust became so powerful? How was it that this man of dust became so rich, so rich that in Jerusalem silver wasn't even accounted as valuable because there was so much gold? How is it that Solomon, a man of dust, became so great? Well, I just read how recently as I began reading Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 1 verse 1 says, The Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. I'm reminded of when Joshua took command of the armies of Israel, when he took leadership of Israel after the death of Moses and he led God's people into the promised land. Um, God said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of the people of Israel. God's the one who raises up. He's the one who brings down. God remembers, God knows that we are dust, and we would do well to remember that, too. I want us to see three things from our text this evening. First of all, and my points this evening have come as uh, propositional statements. First, human depravity goes wherever fallen humanity goes. In other words, wherever you find fallen human beings, you're going to find depravity. Secondly, authority exposes the character of those who possess it. And finally, under the sun, key phrase, under the sun, man and beast have a common destiny. So let's unpack these. Human depravity goes wherever fallen humanity goes. Remember in verse 15, the, the writer Solomon, Kohelet, the preacher, he reasserted the theme that we saw in chapter 1, verse 9, stating essentially that there's nothing new under the sun. So verse 15 of this chapter says, that which is has already been, that which is to be already has been. There's nothing new. And when it comes to things that aren't new, that includes corruption in government or any authority structure for that matter, but in government particular. He saw that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. 
verse 16. That's what happens when you put a fallen, depraved creature in a position of authority. There will be corruption in that place of authority, that place of justice. Now, it doesn't mean authority is bad. We mustn't uh, reach that conclusion or try to draw that conclusion. It doesn't mean we should just get rid of authority because power corrupts, so to speak. No, authority is necessary. Hierarchies and structures of, of governance are, are necessary, and God ordained them. There is no authority, says Paul in Romans, except that which is uh, from God. It's delegated by him, and the, the authorities that exist were ordained by him, put in place by him. And here's the problem, and you know what the problem is. Those who bear authority, without exception, are fallen, flawed, sinful men. That's the problem. We have these structures of authority, but those who occupy them are flawed. Now, when the text speaks of two places, place of justice and the place of righteousness, I think we can take place of justice to be referring to civil government at its various stages and levels. The place of justice is civil government. The place of righteousness is religious government, or we could say church government. So let's think for a moment about civil government, structures of civil authority. What is the primary concern of the civil magistrate and of civil authority, civil government? Well, it's justice, isn't it? Civil government makes law and enforces law. And in our system of government, with its three uh, branches, we could say civil government makes the law, enforces the law, and interprets the law. And yet, there's wickedness in the place of justice, isn't there? We see it in U.S. politics. It's very evident. It seems to be becoming increasingly evident in our day. But it's true of other modern nations, and it's much worse in other modern nations. I mean, we can decry wickedness in government in America, but it's nothing compared to what you might see in a place like North Korea, Iraq, Afghanistan. The corruption is so rampant in countries like that. And in regimes throughout history, it's been the case. It's nothing new. You can even see examples from the pages of Scripture, historical examples. You think of King Ahab, for example, who reigned in the northern kingdom after the kingdom was divided. Ahab was such a wicked and corrupt man. He's a great example of corruption in government and wickedness in the place of justice. Or you think of Pharaoh. Or even, tragically, think of David. David, a man after God's own heart. David, the, the ideal king in terms of Israelite government. And yet, even David, who is a man after God's own heart and who, by and large, was a, was a good king, and he's the king by which every other king was measured, the standard by which all of his uh, followers, his successors, were measured. Even when David was on the throne, what do you see? You see wickedness. In the case of Bathsheba and Uriah, and even that... Um, that tragic uh, census that he took late in life. 
So there's corruption in civil government. Well, what about religious leadership? The place of righteousness, as we might call it. Well, you don't have to have been around very long to have heard about the fall of some prominent church leader, pastor of a mega church is found guilty of some kind of corruption or some kind of immorality. Televangelists, they rise and they fall. And the scandal of wickedness in a high place when it comes to a church leader, a religious leader, is, is compounded because you know, we, we might just sort of as expect or assume corruption in civil government in, in the places of civil authority, but the religious leaders, because that's the place of righteousness, to see wickedness there is especially tragic and scandalous. But when you think about it, why is it that people are so surprised? when we see wickedness in the place of justice? Why is it that people are so surprised when they see corrupt leaders? I mean, Christians of all people ought not to be surprised uh, because we have this doctrine, right? This doctrine of total depravity. We know what's in the heart of man. Jesus knew, and he taught us in his word what's in the heart of man. So when, when we see, then, uh, wickedness in the place of justice, it shouldn't surprise us at all, should it? You see the same idea uh, in, this, in this adage about, well, there's no perfect church, which is true. There's some pretty good churches, and then there's some pretty bad churches, but there's no perfect church. And maybe you've heard that expression, you know, when somebody's trying to find a church home, and they find something about each one they try, each one they visit that they don't like or isn't quite right, and, and they seem to be looking for the perfect church. And you tell them, you're never going to find the perfect church. And then there's that uh, little sort of cynical caveat that we sometimes add. Oh, by the way, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. But there is no perfect church. Why not? Because every church on earth today is comprised 100% of sinners. Whether it's the most liberal, unbelieving church, or whether it's the most reformed, most gospel-promoting, most holiness-pursuing church on the earth, wherever that church is, every single man, woman, and child in that congregation is a sinner. And that's why you never have a perfect church. See, our theology is useful in that way. It informs us about the nature of man. And so what Solomon's text here tonight is getting at is that wherever you find people you're going to find wickedness there's no way around it human depravity goes wherever fallen humanity goes now look with me at verse 17 again how does Solomon respond to this reality of wickedness in high places he says in his heart god will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work he thinks back to those opening verses of chapter three where we are told that for everything there's a season and there's a time for every matter under heaven and he concludes as he reflects on the reality around him that 
Justice will come in due time. A time is coming for God's final reckoning with men. He sees wickedness in the place of justice. He sees wickedness in the place of righteousness. And he reminds himself, sooner or later, God will judge. Think of what Matthew Henry wrote, commenting on this passage. He says, it's an unspeakable comfort to the oppressed that their cause will be heard over again. Let them therefore wait with patience, for there is another judge that stands before the door. In other words, every case is going to have a final appeal in the court of the Most High God. And knowing that, let the righteous take comfort and let the wicked take heed. Human depravity goes wherever fallen humanity goes. Now secondly, we see this, uh, this lesson that authority exposes the character of those who possess it. What does authority do? It's going gonna, it's gonna to shine a spotlight on the heart of the one in authority. You've heard that expression, I'm sure, power corrupts. I remember learning that, I think in junior high, this is the earliest I remember hearing that expression, maybe in a history class or something like that, some civics class that I took, maybe in the eighth grade. And I've heard it many times since then. They teach it in school. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Who said that? Well, um, the statement is attributed to Lord Acton, a British politician and, uh, and author who died at the turn of the 20th century. Here's, here's a full quote from Lord Acton that we kind of truncate in our school textbooks. He said, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more, when you superadd the tendency of the certainty of corruption by authority. So he's saying power corrupts. And I am going to, uh, to dare to differ with him and with your textbooks that you read in the eighth grade or whenever you did. I don't think power corrupts. I don't think scripture bears that out. Here's my hypothesis. Acton was wrong. Power does not corrupt. And absolute power does not corrupt absolutely. Read with me verse 18 again. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Leadership is a test. Power is a test. People's hearts are put under a microscope when they're invested with some measure of power or authority. Power and authority shine a spotlight on the heart of the man or the woman who's in authority. Power doesn't corrupt. What power does is it removes constraints. Power doesn't corrupt. It gives opportunities to people to express their depravity that they might not otherwise have if they didn't possess power. 
because throughout society, in almost any society, there are structures in place, there are laws in place that restrain man's depravity, that restrain wickedness. They inhibit people from doing bad things. But power takes away some of those restraints. Or at least it appears to. Power lifts someone, at least perhaps in their own perception, lifts them above those restraints. So we sometimes have to say, you know, no one's above the law. But because people begin to feel that they are when they're given authority. And what we see in the verse 18 at the end is that power shows people their beastly tendencies. God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Remove those restraints upon them and they just start to act like animals, pursuing their selfish desires, pursuing their lusts. It's kind of ironic, really, because evolutionary thought teaches that that's all we are is just evolved animals. So why is anybody surprised when people act like animals? We know better, but power shows people that tendency. And so here's one, one test of integrity. <coughs> Think about this. What would you do if you knew no one would ever find out? That's a test of integrity. Here's another one, and this especially is where power can come in. What would you do if no one could stop you? Authority opens up both of those scenarios. Authority vested in a person gives them opportunity to do things that they wouldn't be able to do or wouldn't dare do if they weren't in authority. And it gives them occasion to evade consequences. That's what power does. Power is a test. God is testing man, Solomon says. And I remember hearing someone having said that all of life is a test. Think about that. Reflect on that. Uh, day by day, moment by moment, everything's a test. How are you going to respond to this situation or that experience? to this opportunity or whatever. All of life is a test. Every opportunity or disappointment, every blessing or trial is an opportunity for you to be tested. How will you steward what God's providence brings you today? Or since today is pretty much over, how are you going to, how are you going to steward what God's providence brings you tomorrow? Good or bad? Authority exposes the character of those who possess it. <coughs> well, our third point is that under the sun, again, I stress that phrase, under the sun, man and beast have a common destiny. Solomon's keying in here on a theme that we find in Psalm 49. <coughs> it occurs twice in that psalm. Psalm 49, verse 12 says, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. 
And it goes on for several more verses. And at the end of the psalm, verse 20, it reiterates it with a little bit of further explanation. It says, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. And I think Solomon is laying hold of that uh, theme from the psalm. And he's showing the similarity, basically almost the identical nature of humankind with beasts in terms of our end, in terms of our destiny. <coughs> now, I want to point out that uh, there's, there's a key word in this text in, in the Hebrew. Uh, it's the word ruach. And that word can mean three different things. One word that means breath, in other words, you know, breathing in and out, that. It also means wind, as in the atmospheric phenomenon. And then it also refers to spirit. That one word, Hebrew word, ruach, can mean wind, breath, or spirit. Interestingly, the same is true of its Greek counterpart, pneumos, pneuma or pneumatos, which also can mean breath, wind, or spirit. How do you know which one it means in any given place? Well, remember the three most important rules of scripture interpretation. They are context, context, and context. So you use the context to determine whether it's talking about spirit or wind or breath. And sometimes it's not always perfectly clear, but uh, I think, for instance, in verse 19, why do we use uh, breath there? They all have the same breath. Whereas the same word, Hebrew word ruach, occurs in 21, but there it's translated spirit in our ESV Bibles. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And there are even English versions that will use breath there in verse 21. But here's what I think um, is the operative contextual issue. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think he's saying that we have that the human spirit is the same as somehow the spirit that dwells in an animal. So I think that's why uh, spirit is used in verse 21. But you do breathe the same air as all the animals do. I'll be sitting there at my house and reading a book and I'll look over and the cat's on the couch sleeping and I can see the rise and the fall of the cat's uh, rib cage as she breathes while she's asleep. She's not breathing different air than I do. We have the same breath. We all have the same breath of life, but the human spirit is unique. What Solomon's getting at here, though, in this comparison and contrast to man and beast, <coughs> is that there is no outwardly evident contrast in the life cycle of beasts versus mankind. If you're just to do a, a visible study, a scientific study of the life of an animal and the life of a human being, you wouldn't see any difference physically in terms of the fact that animals die and human beings die. And when an animal dies, its body decays. And when a human being dies, his or her body decays. Physically, the life and the Death and decay are identical. <clears throat> we might not reflect on that very often because, frankly, uh, you and I in our modern society, in Western civilization, are pretty insulated from death, aren't we? It's in some ways regrettable. 
but we don't have much opportunity to see death. I mean, you can go to the grocery store and buy a steak or get some ground beef. That came from an animal that used to be alive. And connecting the dots between the living animal and to the package you pull off the shelf in the store, you don't see any of the dots that connect those. Few of us do. And if we do, it's very rare. But think of what other cultures see on a routine basis. Or let's think about the ancient world. Consider, for instance, if a person were to walk through a field of battle afterwards, and all around their dead, mangled bodies of soldiers who died in combat, and then probably also bodies of dead horses. And unless somebody comes in and cleans all that mess up, what's going to happen to the body of the horse? it's going to decay, it's going to rot and be eaten by worms. And what happens to the body of the men whose bodies are left out on the field of battle is exactly the same. So if you're going to do a study, you wouldn't see any difference. Man and horses putrefying together out in the open field. Which is why the preacher is led to reiterate that refrain from Ecclesiastes, all is vanity. It's all fleeting. So physically, there's this identical nature of the death of man and beast. And beyond that, there's no empirical way to discern or to assert a difference in spiritual destiny. I say there's no empirical way. That's why it says in verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. You can't do this by scientific study and figure out, oh, the spirit of that man returned to the father who gave it. And the spirit of that animal just went down into the earth. So he says, who knows there in verse 21. <clears throat> and just like in, in uh, English, when we use the expression, who knows, we can use it several different ways. Hebrews can too. Um, for instance, you can, you can use the expression, who knows, to, to essentially say that nobody knows. Or you can use it to, uh, to say, well, you never know, or we don't know, and we'll find out eventually maybe, but we don't know now. Here, I think the who knows isn't that sort of rhetorical question necessarily. Here, I think when he says, who knows, it's more like he's saying, um, who among you knows? Where is the wise man who discerns this? Do any of you know that the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? That's what he's saying. Where is the wise? He's definitely not denying the biblical doctrine of the afterlife. We know that because even Solomon himself says at the end of the book, we'll give you a spoiler here, if you look at Ecclesiastes 12, what happens to the spirit of man? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, says the dust returns to the earth as it was, that's your body, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
So right there, Solomon says, I know. I know. The spirit of man goes upward. In other words, it returns to God who gave it. Or you think of Job. Job 19, 26. When he says, I know my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand on the earth in the last day. And Job says something in the next verse, verse 26 of 19. Something that is profound and that shows his Old Testament um, patriarchal age understanding of, of resurrection. Because Job says, though worms eat this body. In other words, even if my body returns to the dust, I die and my body decays. He says, yet I know that in my flesh I shall see God. He believed he, too, would stand on the earth at the latter day. Or think of just that beautiful phrase at the end of Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And, it's a consecutive uh, article there, and next, in other words, after that, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The psalmist knew that there's something after this life. So Solomon isn't denying the biblical doctrine of the afterlife. Here's his point. Beasts die, men die, and there's no apparent difference. <clears throat> so Solomon's asking the question, do you know? Do you know that the spirit of man goes upward? How do you know? It can't be demonstrated via the scientific method. You have to look elsewhere than under the sun. You have to look upward. You have to look to God. You have to seek his word. As my uh, Hebrew professor put it, this is not a matter of observation, but of revelation. God has to show us this. And he has. Under the sun, man and beast have a common destiny. But you have a destiny that's beyond this dust. Well, this section concludes almost quizzically with, a, with another word of encouragement. Read with me verse 22 again. In conclusion, after making all these observations and statements, Solomon writes, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Just to reflect on that, I'll borrow the words of uh, Max Rogland writing in the ESV expository commentary. He says, one does not know what will be after him, or in other words, the lasting results of one's labors. Nevertheless, taking joy in fulfilling one's calling in life is a portion or a reward in itself that reflects the image of the creator. So it's good that you do your work and that you enjoy it and that you enjoy the fruit of your labor. So in conclusion, I just want to make a few points of application and I'll make them in relation to these three points that we've reflected on and I'll go in reverse order. Under the sun, man and beast have a common destiny and so Enjoy God's good gifts with a thankful heart. Why does he give you so many good things? So that you can enjoy them. 
You can enjoy them before him with thanksgiving. It is Christ who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So be good stewards of your blessings. Steward your blessings well and rejoice in your work. Secondly, remember, authority exposes the character of those who possess it. And I think this, more than almost anything else, is motivation for us to obey that scriptural command to pray for those who are in authority over us. Pray for your leaders. Pray for them at the federal level, the state level, the local level. Do you know their names? Do you know the name of your local, uh, your state congressman, your state senator? I'm not talking about federal senators. Pray for them too. But pray for those who are holding those positions of responsibility and authority in the civil government. Understand the burden of leadership and the burden of authority. Have pity on them. And it's easy to get angry about some of the things they do, especially if their policies don't uh, align with, with your values. But remember, they, they're in a rather unenviable position. They have this terrible burden. And, you know, yes, some people pursue office out of a craving for power. They have wrong motivations for wanting to hold office. But regardless of their motive, they're in a place of heavy responsibility and a place of, according to our text, a place of severe testing. And more than that, they're eventually going to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead, for how they stewarded their authority. They need your prayers. So pray for them. They need your prayers and they need divine mercy. And one other thing about authority, because almost everybody here has authority in some measure. Most people do. Most adults do, anyway. And we can think of authority in terms of a head of state. But there are levels of authority and strata of authority that go all the way down to a parent, a homemaking mom, taking care of kids. There's authority there. Authority that you're accountable to God for. And in your spheres of authority, in your spheres of responsibility, remember that you are dust. And look to the Lord for strength and grace. <clears throat> well, finally, human depravity goes wherever fallen humanity goes. We know that. <clears throat> but remember, Lord Acton said absolute power corrupts absolutely. Not true. Not true. Because there's only one person who has absolute authority. And that one person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is without sin. He cannot be corrupted. He is not corrupted. He has absolute authority, but he is not a fallen man. That's why I carefully chose my words. Human depravity goes wherever fallen humanity goes. But human depravity does not go where Jesus goes. Jesus is the sinless God-man. He was not a fallen man. And there was and there is no wickedness in him. In him is perfect righteousness. And praise the Lord that there is, because if it were not so, we would have no sacrifice for sin. He's the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God. And in Him is perfect justice. 
And in his perfect justice, he is coming to judge the living and the dead. As the prophet Daniel told us, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting shame and contempt. And so my closing admonition is prepare for that day. Prepare for that day. Make peace with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, <clears throat> thank you that you are compassionate and thank you that you remember that we are dust. Help us to remember that we are dust. Help us to look to you for grace to help in time of need. And may the Lord Jesus Christ be exalted in our lives. We pray all this in his name. Amen.